Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Anna Mills talks about teaching at a two-year college, digital tools for annotation, artificial intelligence and writing, and open educational resources. Anna Mills teaches English at the College of Marin and previously taught at City College of San Francisco for 17 years. She's the author of an open educational resource textbook, How Arguments Work, a guide to writing and analyzing text in college, which has been praised on OER review sites and used at over 35 colleges. She is recipient of an Open Education Research Fellowship and currently serves as the English Discipline Lead for the Academic Senate of the California Community College's OER initiative. Anna earned a master's degree from Bennington College in Writing and Literature with a focus on nonfiction writing. Her essays have appeared in journals such as The Writer's Chronicle, The Sun, Recently, she has focused on exploring how writing instructors can respond to the accessibility of large language models and taken to tweeting about AI text generators. You can follow her on Twitter at EnglishOER. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with teaching at a two-year college. So you previously taught at City College of San Francisco for 17 years. What was it like to teach at CCSF? And what classroom practices and strategies, approaches to teaching writing, did you find worked most effectively in your institutional context? Well, I really fell in love with City College um, when I started working there in 2001. Um, It's an amazing place. It's incredibly diverse. Um, So our demographics are about a third Asian, a quarter Latinx, um, a fifth white, lots of immigrants, children of immigrants, Generation 1.5. Um, probably a plurality working class, but also middle class and privileged students in significant numbers. Um, Lots of queer students. We have a big age range, people looking for themselves, mid-career, coming back to school, lots of students with different kinds of disabilities, Um, just an incredible range. So I think what that means in the classroom, especially now that Uh, We've transitioned away from offering a lot of remedial developmental courses. Um, Now we've got everybody in our introductory composition course together. So we have such a range of skills um, and we really want to serve everybody in an equity minded way. And so that's that's the context. Um, We have to have a lot of flexibility, use a lot of different strategies. Um, We want to do it well at all levels. I think we do a lot of teaching writing as process, of course, Um, scaffolding, um, bringing in social dynamics into each stage of the writing process. Uh, with attention to affective engagement and close reading. You know, we have a huge department with a lot of approaches, but these are just a few things that stand out as very as very common. We tend to have a social justice orientation and we like to use sort of driving questions or class themes for composition to have a something to focus the the conversation around in the course of the semester. So I think that's the the snapshot of the college that I'm coming from. Um, So, I mean, I kind of come from, it's very eclectic and hybrid. Um, I want it to be organic and meaningful to students in a personal way. I want to develop relationships and teach through relationships. And, you know, I have a background as a creative writer. Um, And at the same time, I was really influenced by this idea of, you know, there is such thing as cultural capital. And if we don't teach specific skills, Um, and teach sort of, okay, here's what the language of power 
looks like. And here's what people do to make moves within the power structure, right? If we don't do that, then we're, we're allowing inequity to increase, right? So, so I really have gravitated toward learning. How can I help students um, in really concrete ways with concrete strategies for writing essays and reading and sort of speaking a language of power when they choose to, right? So for allowing the possibility, all the possibilities for code meshing, right? That, that students can make those choices. And that's kind of led to this approach um, in my textbook that I'll talk about later that involves using templates. And I also teach hybrid, so, you know, critical digital pedagogy, looking at how can we use these tools and not hype them up. Um, and so I've been using a lot of social annotation, especially, and kind of leading workshops in my department about that. Um, very jazzed about seeing students support each other and engage in the margins of the text right alongside it as they read. So those are just a few things that I'm, I'm into lately. What digital tools do you use for annotation? Um, I use, I currently use Perusal. Um, before that, I used Hypothesis. My institution, um, didn't go for doing the institutional subscriptions. So we went to what we could do for free, which was perusal. And I see, you know, real strengths and weaknesses in both uh, platforms, but I've loved working with both platforms overall. Um, and I've also seen uh, teachers using Google Docs, just using Google Docs and making that work. Um, but I really love that I can basically, anytime I assign reading, it's in perusal and students, and it has kind of a social media feel. So they're responding to each other's posts and kind of liking each other's posts. And, um, and I've had a lot of positive feedback about that um, from students at the end of the semester. Anna, your teaching and research interests focus on studying artificial intelligence. What got you interested in this work and what do you find most concerning about it in terms of its influence on, on the teaching and learning of writing? Well, this is kind of a, a recent intensive focus of mine. Um, as, as I learned about AI text generators and what they could do, I kind of um, couldn't believe it. Um, I had to stop drinking uh, black tea because I was just so worked up. I couldn't believe this was possible. Um, and it happened because a, a friend of mine who's a sociologist was giving a talk on AI in medicine and how it might lead to health disparities or greater health disparities. And she sort of encouraged me to say, how does this relate to your field? And as I started to, um, you know, go back to, there's a couple of introductory New Yorker articles and New York Times articles about the current state of large language models, sort of artificial intelligence text generation. Um, I was pretty amazed. So I think most people are familiar with um, email kind of autocomplete features that are on most platforms now. So the idea that, you know, you feed it a few words and it tries to guess how you're likely to continue that. And that happens with search as well, with Google search, you know, a couple of words and it guesses what's the rest of the search string going to be. So I think one way to think about what the AR text generators do is just to think, well, what if you could feed it a couple of paragraphs, and it would give you a couple of paragraphs of its own back. It would guess, how would you continue from the from where you started? Um, and, and that's essentially what these tools can do. And they are freely available. They're not free, except in trial versions, um, but they're fairly cheap. Um, 
And so I started to experiment with um, the main model that's widely available, which is called GPT-3. Um, and it's from a company called OpenAI. And they just allow you to make an account and it's, it's non-technical, you're not coding. You are writing what you want it to give you. And, um, and then you're sort of tweaking the settings and trying it, getting different multi-paragraph responses. Um, and so the thing that's bizarre is that um, even though it's trained on kind of much of the internet, it's not feeding you text that's plagiarized. So it's not feeding you paragraphs from Wikipedia. It's actually generating original sentences and paragraphs. Um, and you know, if you give it the same prompt three times, it can give you three different paragraphs. Um, and it's pretty much grammatically correct. Um, it's, you know, it has problems. Sometimes it will get things wrong. Sometimes it will contradict itself. It has no connection to reality. So it's not testing anything it says against any other sources. All it's doing is using its sort of statistical knowledge of this huge volume of text um, that includes Reddit and Wikipedia and much of the internet. Um, it's just using that, those statistics on that data to predict which words might come next. You know, it's, it, it can do quite a bit more than I imagined. Well, I, I thought, oh, that's in the future, right? So concerns, I think pretty clearly this is, this is a tool that is now available to students and students, if you get on TikTok or on YouTube, you, there are definitely quite a few videos of students saying, hey, <laughs> you know, if you need to write your essay quickly, just use GPT-3. <laughs> it's like 10 minutes and there's your essay, right? And uh, it's free. So they're promoting it. And you also have a lot of like anecdotal discussion on Twitter from academics who have been trying prompts on it and saying uh, it's, it's spitting out a C paper or a B paper. And I wouldn't be able to detect that this is AI writing and not student writing, right? Um, so you have plenty of anecdotal evidence. I haven't seen a peer-reviewed study, but I have seen a non-peer-reviewed study that showed an average of, you know, maybe it's getting C's. But clearly, we don't have a, a set way to handle this as teachers. Um, is it plagiarism? Um, it can't be detected using plagiarism detectors. It's not going to show up on Turnitin. I think institutions don't have policies set around it. And should we be concerned, I'm going to make the case that we that we should make a big effort to learn about it and have some major discussions in which we try to come up with guidelines for teaching students about this and for making it really clear how and whether they're allowed to use these tools. What do you feel like can be done about this? And how do you navigate this conversation with students? I imagine conversations with students about AI and writing generators is a good place to start. And then what's next? What else can teachers and programs and even the field do in terms of research and response to this work? I know. It's, it's, there's so many possibilities. And I've started to see so many ideas thrown around on Twitter um, for different approaches. And I think, um, you know, one approach is to say, maybe we don't need to worry about it because um, we need to focus on say, 
ungrading and intrinsic motivation and sort of showing students, you know, maybe we just need to educate them on why they don't need that tool and um, help them see the value in the writing process itself without, without such tools. Um, so I think that's, that's one approach. Um, I think the danger to that is that um, you're gonna have some students using it and you could see increasing inequity because you have privileged students who are aware of it and who are using it and less privileged students maybe who are not. Um, I think that some form of critical AI literacy is gonna become part of the digital literacy that we're all needing to teach because this is just gonna be a bigger part of society and of everything we do. But as far as how do we respond in terms of assessment, you know, I've seen definitely there's, there are various defensive postures, you know, people saying this can become part of, of an honor system. They could, we could ask them to affirm that they have not used these tools as many institutions ask them to affirm they haven't plagiarized um, and develop, you know, stronger norms around that. Um, that's one option. Another option would be to try to design prompts that GPT-3 or other language models are very bad at. So there's a range of performance and depending on what kind of prompt you give it, it does better or worse. Um, so I know a teacher who says, well, if I ask students to refer to class discussion and if I ask them to draw on, you know, compare sort of longer texts to each other, that's harder for the model to do because you can only feed it a prompt of a certain length. Um, and you have to start kind of playing with it in a way that's more like coding in order to get it to do longer pieces. Um, people have gotten it to write novels and stuff, but there's a lot of steps along the way. So you can design, we can design and test our, our writing prompts to sort of evade it um, or make it harder for students to use it, or they could only use it for a paragraph of that, or they'd have to write part of the paragraph and let it continue. It's not good at finding sources that are real. It makes up sources it makes up pretty credible sounding sources. Um, so works cited, you know, if we had a tool where we could check those for, for reality, that would be nice. And, and my first instinct was to say, well, I don't want to be defensive. I want to know, like, how could we use this as part of our pedagogy? If this is going to be part of the world that, of tools that are available to students, it's going to be part of the working world, um, you know, marketing writers, um, web content writers are using this extensively already. Um, we, you know, we should be accepting maybe, maybe that um, students are going to be doing this working collaboratively with AI in kind of an intelligence augmentation model, not letting it take over, but working with it. And that maybe our role will be to help them learn to do that dance where they prompt it and then they assess its response and revise it and prompt it again and sort of tweak the prompt. And, um, you know, there's a lot of critical thinking involved in trying to use these tools. So, you know, one way we could go would be that. As a teacher, you're also dedicated to open educational resources. Can you talk more about your interest and investment in OER? And I want to give you space and time to talk about your textbook, How Arguments Work. What's this OER text about? And how does it help teachers and students better understand argumentation? I discovered OER three years ago. It's just tremendously exciting that there is this way, that it has so many affordances on so many levels. Um, one, you're making the textbooks free. So studies have shown that you have increased retention 
of students and disproportionately increased for low-income students and students of color. And you have increased achievement. And in part, that's just based on removing the barrier of cost, right? So that's the simple level. But on another level, um, as far as the power relationship between student teacher and between teachers and publishers, it really changes the dynamics. So as a teacher, I was able to make a textbook um, and write a good part of it and publish it, continually update it and ask my students for feedback on it and change it in response. Um, and I was able also to adapt chapters from other composition textbooks that I liked. Um, and I was able to get in and actually edit what those other writers had done and put the new version into my textbook. Um, so it's this incredible collaborative model um, where the textbook is this living, living thing and you're working with all these colleagues and what you're creating is open to others to adapt and remix. Um, and it's open to student involvement. So I can talk to students about my process with the textbook. They're reading it. I'm saying, I'm hoping this is helpful, but let me know what doesn't make sense and what else you need. And um, I talk to them about my struggles as a writer in creating the textbook that they're reading. So it's very kind of equalizing. I find myself referring students so much to They Say, I Say, this sort of extremely popular tiny textbook that um, is kind of an easy reference for, they call it the moves that, um, the moves we make in academic writing, I think by Graf and Birkenstein. I think what I liked about that was there's this sense of, oh, I could do that. I know that phrase, I've seen that before. I could say that, I could start something that way. Um, so, and I get that a lot from students in the margins, like, yeah, oh, I could use this. And I think people fear that templates are kind of a cookie cutter thing that's part of standardizing education. And I see it mostly in the opposite way, that it's a generative um, offering because it's expanding the sense that students have of, of the, what moves they could make, you know, in the chapters on critical assessment um, and responding to an argument, the sense is, you know, there are several sort of bread and butter ways that we can um, critique an argument. And here are phrases we might use to do that, right? So it's a very non-technical approach to logos and fallacies really sorted out according to um, what kind of move is it that we're making here in relation to a text. Uh, that we might commonly make doing common college writing tasks. And so for each page where there's kind of a logos concept or a fallacy concept described in everyday language, there are also a set of phrases that the student could use to make that move. Pointing these things out explicitly, I think, increases the range of options that students feel they have for, for making something that's their own contribution, that takes the conversation forward, that's not just, you know, reading the text and doing what the teacher said, but making something that's their own. So I do feel like it has that potential to lead to more originality, um, even though we're providing templates as a way to familiarize students with those moves. Thanks, Anna. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.